0: Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 5 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. In the earlier episodes of the series, I introduced you to the problem with Einstein's 1905 derivation, as well as to the basic concepts of a complete and incomplete coordinate system. In today's episode, I want to talk to you about Einstein's theory, what it means in general terms, and how my model and Einstein's theory differ when it comes to explaining some of the experiments we hear about in the news. In fact, I'd say that today's episode stems from a dinner conversation I had with several friends a few weeks ago. I'm surprised by the number of people, non-scientists especially, who have a genuine interest in physics and special relativity. I think it's fun, and it's always nice to run across people who are interested in what you're doing. Anyway, at one point during our dinner conversation, our host asked, So, what is Einstein's theory about anyway? Let's start by revisiting the last episode where I introduced my model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. In order to explain Einstein's model, I want to first set it within the context of my model. And as we talked about last time, in my model, there are two types of coordinate systems. One is an incomplete coordinate system, and the other is a complete coordinate system. And rather than go into detail re-explaining those here, I'd like to invite you to either listen to episode four of the podcast or to visit the relativitychallenge.com website. Now, Einstein offers two postulates, which I'll call rules. In addition, he offers a set of transformation equations. Now in my model, I apply the postulates or the rules to one type of coordinate system, specifically a complete coordinate system while I'm able to apply the equations to the other type of coordinate system or an incomplete coordinate system. This gives me multiple ways of explaining things. So in my model, how things behave in a moving incomplete coordinate system may be different than they might behave in a moving complete coordinate system. Now in Einstein's world, he only has one type of coordinate system, which means that the postulates and the equations both apply at the same time. And this will have ramifications on how his equations are then interpreted as well as how his theory unfolds. Also, revisiting the examples that I gave last time using a truck and a bird, we can easily see that there's one equation that tells us how far the bird has flown and another equation that tells us where the truck is. And this is a key distinction, as in Einstein's model, he comes up with an equation for the bird, but then he tells us that this is the position or the equation for the truck. Again, this interpretation is a source of one of the differences between his theory and my model. Now, you're not going to find trucks and birds if you look at Einstein's paper and reread his books, but you will find trains and rays of light. The concepts are the same. Remember, my goal in using birds and trucks are to explain things in terms that people can easily grasp and visualize. Now, I would like to restate one important characteristic of my challenge. I don't challenge Einstein on theoretical grounds first. Rather, my challenge assumes that his theory is right, and then I go on to show that it's not mathematically correct according to the rules of algebraic substitution. And it's this inaccuracy that opens up the door for me to first offer corrections, then present a new model, and finally suggest new interpretations based on that model. Okay, now with all of that behind us, let's take a look at Einstein's theory and what it's all about. In a nutshell, he says two things, and this is, this is the foundation of his theory. First, he says, regardless of whether or not something is moving or it's stationary, the laws of physics are the same. So for now, let's ignore effects of acceleration or, you know, the bumpiness you might feel if you're on a train or in an airplane, which would be indicators of movement. Assuming you're having a perfectly smooth ride, um, he basically says without some other indicator, looking out of a window, a speedometer, something else that that, um, gives you some sort of external reference, you're not going to be able to determine if you're moving and the things that you would do while you're moving are the exact same things that you'd be able to do if you were stationary you, the world view hasn't changed so that's fundamentally what he says now this concept to me actually sounds rational and in fact it's what i say happens in a complete coordinate system now the second thing that einstein says is that when something is in motion time goes slower. Now what he specifically says is when a train is in motion a ray of light takes longer to travel from the rear of the train to the front of the train. But again think of my example in episode 4 where in an incomplete coordinate system it takes the bird longer to fly from the back of the cage to the front of the cage. Now here's where the differences come into play. In a complete coordinate system I say the bird has to be able to fly from the back to the front. And I don't care how fast the truck is moving. This is consistent with Einstein's view. In an incomplete coordinate system, I don't have this constraint. But I do say it will take the bird longer to reach the front. And if the coordinate system, or the truck, moves faster than the bird can fly, then the bird will never reach the front. Now, Einstein says both things apply at the same time. In other words, the bird takes longer to reach the front, as observed by an outsider. And he also says it must reach the front. And this has the effect of saying that the truck can never go as fast or faster than the bird can fly. Okay, so switching back to light waves instead of birds, but maintaining the same concept, this is why Einstein says we cannot go faster than the speed of light. Basically, he takes both of his positions, his equations and his postulates, and associates them to a single type of coordinate system, and that creates this limitation. A limitation, as I've discussed, is lifted by having two types of coordinate systems. What's interesting is that there are a number of recent experiments that show that scientists have been able to get things to move faster than the speed of light, which would be, of course, inconsistent with Einstein's theory, but in line with my model. In fact, just this month, 2007, New Scientist magazine published an article where two German scientists have moved a photon at speeds faster than the speed of light. Again, this would be a clear violation of Einstein's theory, but is perfectly acceptable in my model. And there are other experiments where scientists have either slowed down a ray of light, suspended it, or had it go faster than Einstein's theory allows. Now, in the past, researchers have come up with reasons as to why their findings did not violate special relativity. I hope that as more scientists become aware of my findings and my model, that they feel that they have another option available to them, and they no longer feel constrained by the limitations imposed by special relativity. So the next thing I'd like to address today is with regard to time and aging. Heard the twin paradox. In this paradox, one twin stays on Earth while the other twin is placed in a rocket ship and launched into outer space and travels as close to the speed of light as possible. After 50 years, the rocket returns and both sisters greet each other. The sister who remained on Earth has aged 50 years while... The one who was moving and on the rocket ship had hardly aged at all. Now part of the reason this is a paradox is because from the point of view of the sister in the rocket she's the one who's stationary and it's the one who is on earth who's the one who's moving and so therefore who aged and who stayed the same is reversed. So that's what makes this such an interesting paradox but let's set that aside for a moment and try and figure out how this paradox gets established in the first place. And in order to view this, we have to go back to Einstein's postulates and see how they were applied to a single coordinate system. In this case, let's start with an incomplete coordinate system. And let's say that we have our bird, it's at the back of the cage, and it takes five seconds for it to fly from the back of the cage to the front of the cage. Now, we put the truck and the cage in motion, and we've already shown that it will take the bird longer to fly from the rear of the cage to the front. And we can mathematically show what this equation is. Now according to Einstein's rules, the rules of physics don't change just because it's a moving system. Now remember, I apply this rule to a complete coordinate system only, So, but we're talking about an incomplete coordinate system, so let's see what this means. First, it would mean that the bird must be able to make it to the front of the cage. Again, this limits how fast the truck can travel. And second, that from the bird's perspective, since it took it five seconds to fly from the rear to the front of the cage when the cage was stationary, it still takes it five seconds to fly from the rear to the front of the cage now that it's in motion. It doesn't matter that you and I can either be sitting in the cage with the bird or sitting on the sidewalk watching all of the activity, look at our watch and see that it now takes the bird 20 seconds to go from the back to the front. Einstein's theory says that from the bird's perspective it has only been flying for five seconds. Now on the surface you're going to say, well that doesn't make sense. And I will say actually when you combine Einstein's rules and you apply them to a single coordinate system, this is a natural theoretical outcome, and thus becomes the source of the twin paradox. Now I'd like to continue on by answering a question. I received an email essentially asking that if Einstein's theory is wrong, how can people working on experiments with particle accelerators and colliders be getting their research right? And this is a great question. And it goes to two things. First. There are events and interpretations of those events. So, when we see something happening, we use a certain theory or model as our framework to explain what's occurring. And to date, many people use Einstein's theory as that framework. It doesn't mean it's the answer, it just gives the researcher a framework within which to explain his or her findings. The same data might be interpreted differently in a different model. And you'll see examples of this if you review my Michelson and Morley interferometer analysis or Ives-Stilwell atomic clock analysis. Second, in some cases, the data isn't analyzed by using Einstein's equations as he gives them in his papers. And by this, I mean to say that the numerator in his time equation requires a value for the x variable and a value for the t variable. Many experiments are analyzed using only t in the numerator. And while my model provides an equation that only uses T, Einstein's does not. And this brings me to a very important point about theories and models that I want to share. And to do this, I'm going to recount a lesson that I learned from my macroeconomics instructor when I was working on my MBA. When we'd question a particular model, he'd say, and I'm going to quote him here, it's just a model It's one person's way of explaining something in the world. If you don't like the model, that's okay. Create your own model and maybe one day I'll be teaching it. And that's probably one of the best pieces of advice I can recall receiving because it's true. Remember, the model is not the world. It's not the truth. It's just a tool that helps us understand something. So in my case, when I explain something using birds and trucks, it's just a model something that helps us get our arms around a concept. Don't take it as golden. But to some extent, I think some people have taken Einstein's model as golden and have said this is how the world operates. And that's unfortunate because that leaves little room for understanding new things as they're discovered. As is the case today, as I mentioned earlier, where we're finding out that scientists are doing experiments where they're having things travel faster than the speed of light. So it's my hope that from today's episode, you come away with a better understanding of Einstein's model and how it relates to the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. I hope that you have a better understanding of Einstein's two rules, which he applies to one type of system, but I apply to two. And for those with an appetite for more, I recognize I haven't gone into a lot of detail about Einstein's theory. I would invite you to look at uh, some of my other papers on the website or to research some of Einstein's books and papers. In fact, there are a couple of books that are out now that I wanna just mention. One is called Simply Einstein by Richard Wolfson. Uh, It does not go into a lot of math, but will give you a good perspective of Einstein's work as well as the interpretation of some of his experiments. And there's another book that was recently published, I think within the last six months, called Einstein, His Life in Universe, by Walter Isaacson. Uh, While it's predominantly a a biography, uh, chapter six has about 30 pages in it that discuss uh, the meaning and history of special relativity. So those might be good places to start. Uh, And for those of you who are up to much more of a challenge, of course, you can read Einstein's book entitled Relativity, or you can go down and read his 1905 paper. Remember, as you read any of these works, keep one thing in mind, they're all geared to helping you understand a theory that, from their perspective, is theoretically and mathematically correct. And you, the listeners of this podcast, have an advantage of knowing that there is a mathematical problem in Einstein's derivation. And, as I said in the past, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, meaning we need to understand Einstein's concepts that can remain which ones need to be changed, and which ones need to be retired. So this brings us to the conclusion of episode 5 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. As I wrap up today's show, I want to remind you I'd love to hear your feedback, thoughts, comments, and suggestions. So feel free to drop me a message at email at RelativityChallenge.com. Today's music was provided by Black Lab from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. This show is copyright 2007 by Stephen Bryant and relativitychallenge.com. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you'll return again next time. Until then, be well.